are indeed a great God. We praise you this morning in the name of Jesus Christ, who is risen from the dead, O Lord. May we rise with him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. May we be risen with him. I'm going to ask you this morning to open your Bibles again to Romans chapter 4. We're on a mission, book of Romans, the great doctrinal treatise of the New Testament. It's all there. As I said before, if you don't like theology, this is not your book. Find another one. (laughs) Turn to Romans chapter 4. I'm going to read the first 16 verses. Seems like we've done this before, but I think we need to say a few other things about it. So Romans chapter 4, the first 16 verses this morning, and I will make my comments based on this passage of Scripture. And so Paul writes to the Roman church of the first century, What then shall we say? That Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh. What has he found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted as righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while he was uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who are not only, who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray you open and unlock the mysteries and the teachings of your word for the faithful this morning, O Lord, and that you would be with your servant as I proclaim this morning, Father, the deep things of God from this text, the blessed word of holy God, we pray in Jesus' name. So that's actually a mouthful of scripture, isn't it? When he's talking about circumcision, what he's doing is he's talking to the Jews. That was their right. That was sort of, we have baptism, they have circumcision. It's the sign of who they are. Baptism isn't who we are, it's the sign of who we are. And that's what he was saying. 
Um, and so he begins, I'll begin in verse 11, where he said, Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. Friends, that's a mouthful of scripture, but what he's trying to say is faith is the determining factor in your place before God. It isn't whether or not you were sealed by the covenant sign of the law of God because Abraham received his faith before the law was instituted. In fact, he received it before he received circumcision. And when he received circumcision, it wasn't part of the law for another 400 years. Also, we could know that Abraham's the father of us all who believe, not just the Jews, but all of us. And Paul is saying this to a very diverse body of believers in the Roman church. You know, we were talking Thursday night about, what did we call it? Chronological snobbery. <laughs> we tend to think that we in the last times are blessed with knowing so much more than they knew before. You know, you hear all this talk about diversity today, right? Friends, there was so much diversity in the New Testament uh, scriptures, so much diversity in the, in the Roman church, in the Ephesian church, these churches of big cities. People from all over the world came there and worshiped together as one in Christ. When the 120 disciples were in the upper room on the Pentecost day, they came down. Every language, every ethnic background, every race was there on the street being saved by hearing the word of God. Diversity is not new to men. It's to talk about it, I guess, is trendy again, but it was always there. And if anyone invented it, friends, it was Christianity. And so we come to this passage of Romans in our series, and it, and it falls on Resurrection Sunday. So I'm going to do my best this morning to keep in mind the glorious tradition of celebrating the anniversary of the resurrection of our Lord, which we call Easter Sunday. Some call it Easter Sunday. Some just say Resurrection Sunday. So we keep in mind the glorious tradition of celebrating the anniversary of Christ risen from the grave, the stone rolled away by the power of God. And I'll try to incorporate this event, and I think it's readily achievable, into the teaching from Romans of just exactly what Christ did for us on the cross. Now, Paul labored hard and long to convey the wonderful doctrine of justification. Friends, we need to know the names of some of the doctrines. Justification by faith, the doctrine of justification, of clearing your ledger before God. You come into this world already owing God something, and that something that you owe him is your very life. And so we come to this passage where he argues for the complete and unassailable justification of the sinner before God. Friends, if God has justified you, you are justified. There's nothing you can do to undo that. There's nothing you could have done to do it without God. And I've said this to you before, but I want to I press this point to you today. A simple way of, of um, uh, approaching some of these concepts is this. You can't do anything to make God love you more than he does. And you can't do anything to make God love you less than he does. Why he loves you in the first place, friends, I have no idea. <laughs> Why he loves me, 
I have no idea. I have a hint. In fact, I know the general reason why. The general reason why he loves the church is because it pleases him to do so. You got to remember, God's the, dare I say it, the elephant in the room. He does whatever he wants. If it pleases him, he'll save you. If it doesn't, if it doesn't please him, he won't. And that's going to be the crescendo in the climax of this whole teaching of Romans when we get to chapters 8, 9, and 10. So I keep trying to prepare you for that. For Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. And we've got to grapple with those things that, that grind against the ears of our uh, equal opportunity society that we live in. And so faith is a good thing, friends. It's the best of things. We're justified by it. Faith is a good thing. The Bible speaks of faith. You hear people talk about faith all the time. I want you to know that most people that use the term faith have really no idea what they're talking about, but I want you to know this. Faith must have an object. It must rest on something, you see. A person's faith is only so strong as the object of his faith, right? People say things blithely about faith. Oh, have faith. In what? What should I have faith in? They say, have faith in yourself. I don't know about you, but I remember my past. That's a fine saying, have faith in yourself. Isn't that fine? That's a nice cliche. We like that. I saw a a trailer. uh, uh, It was from Fox News, and it was trying to show... There's a a religious station or something with Fox News now, right? Maybe on Fox Nation or something. And they were showing all of this... This, these religious shows that they're going to show you to sort of bolster your faith. And, and so they, they went through, um, you know, different trailers of the different shows they're going to show. And then they showed my old friend, Michael Landon. Remember Michael Landon? Was he, um, he wasn't touched by an angel. He was, he, he was, heaven, what was it? No, 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 no. He had a, he was an angel in one of the, one of the old shows. I can't believe I can't. No, not touched by an angel. Highway to heaven. <laughs> so it shows all that to give this little illustration that just came to me. So there's Michael Landon. And he says, don't ever, don't ever uh, be afraid to do what your heart tells you to do. That's the religious training from Fox News. <laughs> Friends, Fox News, I'm glad it's there, but don't get your religious training from Fox News. When I heard that, I looked at And I love Michael Landon. I'm an old, you know, bonanza guy. But um, you can keep... Uh, the highway to heaven. A person's faith is only so strong as the object of his faith, and as the faith is have faith in yourself and listen to the voice in your heart, friends, you're already lost. All right? So they say have faith in yourself. Would you really trust yourself to yourself for, the, for your eternal deportment? I don't know how to get myself to eternity. I need help with that. And in case you're not aware of it, you need help too. You could have faith in government. A lot of people have faith in government today, right? But Friends, governments change. Study history. It doesn't take long to find out that governments change, right? They come and go. They can be overthrown. You never know how long a government's going to be there or how long it's going to be on your side. No, that's not a great object to, to uh, rest your faith on. Um, we can have faith in any number of things. We can, some speak of a higher power. Let's have faith in a higher power. Well, we're sort of getting there with that kind of talk. But, but ask yourself this, why would you put your faith in a higher power when the highest power in the universe has called you to faith in himself? Why stop along the way with these higher powers, which, by the way, friends, are 
creations of your imagination. And so if you created these higher powers that you're looking to, they ought to get down and worship you. So we say such things as choose a higher power. But if we do the choosing, then the power we choose is a creation of our own making. Only God, friends, is worthy of our faith. And that's what the apostle's talking about here. Believe him and you'll be saved. You'll be saved because your sin debt will be paid. It's called justification. And it won't be paid by you. It'll be paid by someone else. It'll be paid at the cross at Calvary. And only at the cross can it be said that it is finished, paid in full. That's the only place. In fact, that's the only time. It won't be said again. It is finished. Your salvation was finished on that day. The scriptures say Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham believed in the highest power. He believed in the promise and the purpose of that power. God is an unchangeable, unassailable, all-powerful being. And so once a man's put his faith in God, he has no incentive to go elsewhere. But God has appointed a narrow path to himself. You see, this is where we lose some people. The path to God. There are not many paths to God. No, there's one path. And by God's own decree, he has said that we may only approach him through his son, Jesus Christ. So believing in God is not quite the point of the message. It is rather believing God. Now, I labored this last week. A lot of people say blithely, I believe in God, who have no understanding of the God that they believe in at all. And just saying, I believe that he exists is not the same as faith accounted for righteousness, friends. Believing in the purpose of God, which is to justify the faithful. Believing his purpose is to justify sinners, to to clear the sin ledger, to wipe out their debt. It's called justification. To pay for our transgressions. And the payment determined by God is the death of his one and only begotten son. That's the only thing he would accept. No other currency was acceptable. Your good works, not acceptable. Not acceptable in the temple. Only this one currency is available. The death of Christ, the blood of Christ on the cross is the currency that buys your eternal salvation. And that's the gospel, friends. It's really very simple. Jesus Christ accomplished that task when he gave his life a ransom for the many. And we said last week, it's not just belief in God as to his existence, it's believing God as to his character, as to his purpose, as to his perfect, unapproachable righteousness. We can't even think on our own to approach God in his perfect righteousness the way we are with our sin debt unpaid. For how many people speak of believing in God who have no idea of what he truly is? And so if a sin is to approach such a righteous God, he too must become righteous. And such a thing cannot be accomplished by human endeavor, friends. If we're to be justified, that is, cleared of wrongdoing, then God himself must take the initiative to justify us. And he does it while we're still sinners. So God gives us the faith to believe while we're still sinners, before we even have an inkling of trying to gain favor with God. If God's merciful, then he'll forgive. If God is just, then the sins he forgives have to be paid for. And the blood of his son is the payment. It's the only payment that he'll accept. The sinless must pay for the sinful, for how could one sinner pay for another? And so Paul's point is well taken, friends. 
Circumcision, an act of the flesh, cannot justify you before God. Acts of contrition are human acts, and so are disqualified as justifying payments. Suffering, friends, fasting, making holy pilgrimage, self-flagellation. Some people beat themselves. Luther did that for a while. They're trying to punish themselves. Friends, God punished Jesus for your sin. All these other things, these good works, cannot accomplish what faith did. Faith can do it, and faith is the gift of God. And so when we're confronted with the awful scene of a bloodied man carrying his cross through the streets of Jerusalem, we must focus our attention on the facts leading up to that event. Why was this man bludgeoned and bleeding and ridiculed and spat upon and then forced in that weak state to carry a heavy beam through a crowded street? Why did that happen? What were the events leading up to it? Jesus of Nazareth, a man who for the last three years of his life preached the kingdom of God and the saving gospel of Christ. He was confronted by the authorities who at every turn tried to discredit him with difficult questions. We talked about it this morning. Bill read it this morning. But to no avail. At every turn, he turned their devices upon themselves and left every confrontation with greater esteem and greater affection from his hearers than when he entered the conversation. Yet he was accused, and he was arrested, and he was tried for seditious crimes against the state and blasphemous teachings against God. His crimes were both against church and state, friends. Now, it's at this juncture that we should recognize just exactly what happened. You see, he was tried and convicted. Remember? He was tried and convicted. But at the same time, he was convicted, he was sentenced, he had not been found guilty. Follow the story carefully. His judges found him without fault, but sentenced anyway. They knowingly let an innocent man proceed to the cross at Calvary. How do we know this? By the very words of the judges that day. First, there was the secular authority, Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate is, a, is um, an, one of the most interesting characters of history. He appears in two of our sacred creeds. The Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. When it talks about Christ, it says, He was crucified under Pontius Pilate, right? Was crucified, died, and was buried, and rose again the third day. Pontius Pilate's written right into our creeds. Pilate was the governor of Palestine at the time who declared, after examining the prisoner, Jesus, he said, I find no fault in this man, Luke 23, 4. I find no fault in him. He was the governor. He was the judge. He was the one that had to pronounce sentence. Now, at this juncture, there are a few details that we should keep in our mind with regard to the due process of law being adjudicated on that day. The defendant was pronounced innocent. They had due process. Remember, if there's no due process, there's no process at all. Now, that's an important detail in the passion story in the fourth chapter of Romans. For after the pronouncement of his innocence, the mob was disgruntled by the verdict. You see that a lot today, don't you? It, things have not changed all that much. And so we see much the same thing in our day when a vociferous, that means a vocal minority, are displeased with the wheels of justice and the outcomes of them, and they cry foul. 
They don't like the outcome. The governor said, you know, when they took him to Pilate, they were so certain that Pilate would just crucify him to get it over with. As it turns out, Rome had a, well, to some degree, a better justice system than the Hebrews had at that time. And so it says of the crowd that cried foul, but they were the more fierce, saying he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. He stirs up the people. That was his sin. You see, the mob is so ferocious and uncontrollable, they actually hold sway in the due process of law. Remember when Bill was reading this morning, and the uh, religious authorities came out and said, should we pay taxes? And they knew when Jesus said, I'll answer that if you answer this question, John the Baptist, where is he from? And they knew if they said he wasn't from God, they'd go against the people and they feared the mob. You always have to be concerned as a political leader about, what the, about bringing the mob's affections along with you. So here he is, he's, he's pronounced innocent, yet the mob continues to invent new charges that they say need to be considered. It's kind of like you go in and you, and, the, uh, and you get pronounced guilty and as they're taking you out and you're leaving and they're taking the handcuffs, handcuffs and the shackles off, other people will go, but he did this too. But he did this too. It's too late. Trial's over. You want a new trial on another charge, fine. But they want them, they want to just yell in more charges against total due process of law. Their initial charge was that he forbade followers to pay taxes, as we heard this morning, and that he was, quote, perverting the nation. Imagine that. He was perverting the nation. How many people ought to be in prison for that today? You can almost see and feel the frothing mouths of bloodthirsty priests all clamoring for a different outcome. If there were other charges against them, they should have been put on the docket in the first round of his arraignment, but they weren't. Yet their heightened excitement actually influenced the governor who thought to deliver him to the local authority. And the local authority was Herod, who happened to be there that day for the Passover. Just happened to be there. And so we read in verse 7, the same chapter, And as soon as Pilate knew that Jesus belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. Herod was the king of the Jews, friends. He figured, let their, let their own tetrarch try him, and then I won't be, I'll be absolved of the guilt of the, of the uh, verdict I pronounce. So Herod... Tetrarch of Galilee, Jesus' home province, Galilee, also examined him and found no further reason for punishment. So he sends him back to Pilate for sentencing. It says that Pilate and Herod became friends that day. So when Pilate had called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, he said to them, you have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. And then he says, neither did Herod. Both judges found him innocent. For I sent you back to him, and indeed nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him, for it was necessary for him to release one to them at the feast. You remember the tradition, right? So he has two judges of great note, of great authority in the land. They both look at the charges, consider them fairly, pronounce the man innocent. And then this whole thing about releasing one of the prisoners to them. Pilate just assumed he would release Jesus and that would be all right now. They had the trial, but no such things happened. This is where the moment was open 
for the clamoring crowd to famously call for Barabbas. You know the story, right? And you know the rest of the story. Barabbas, as you know, was charged with rebellion and murder and was in all likelihood guilty of it. You know, there's a whole backstory about Barabbas that people talk about that we don't really have uh, confirmation on, certainly not from Scripture, but he was a revolutionary in the time. It was thought by some that the two thieves on the cross were followers of Barabbas. Some thought Judas was a follower of, of Barabbas, right? Um, so this whole backstory on Barabbas, but he was guilty of the crimes he was in prison for. He had, he had um, risen up against the state, and he had killed at least one person. And so they assumed that in all likelihood... Um, Pilate assumed Jesus would be freed. At least that's the opinion of a lot of commentators on this. In fact, you may not know this, but there are a couple of churches today, and I mean denominations, the Coptic Church, um, Ethiopian Orthodox Church, who have Pontius Pilate as a great saint of their, of their faith, of their religion. And they actually, there's an actually a legend that he came around to Christianity. Now, we don't ever talk about that because it's not scriptural. But here you have religions that go back to the first century who actually thought Pilate tried to do the right thing that day. And so the guilty man, and so justice was completely perverted that day, as you know. The guilty man was released, the innocent man was sent to death. And as if that was not enough symbolism for you with regard to the meaning of the cross, which was for the innocent to pay the sin debt for the guilty, the symbolism marches on, friends. Remember the words of Caiaphas, the high priest, who said, Do you consider that it's expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish? How's that for symbolism? Here's another bit of symbolism that I think escapes us as non-Aramaic-speaking people. It has to do with the names of the prisoners. Jesus and Barabbas were the prisoners, right? And the people got to call out the name of their prisoner of choice. Now, to Aramaic-speaking ears, friends, the name Barabbas contains two words. It's made up of two words. It's a compound structure, as many term as many names in other languages are the term bar refers to the son of like if you said barnabas and he's called the son of encouragement remember there was a apostle named bartholomew he was the son of talmai right bar always refers to the son jesus called peter simon bar jonah simon son of jonah right so bar means son of and what does the word abba mean Well, we may remember from the book of Galatians that because you're sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So Barabbas' name is made up of son and father. His name is literally the son of the father. Now, I suppose you're figuring right now how confusing that might have been, how such a handle would indeed make the prisoner exchange at Passover a more confusing moment than it might have seemed. But to confuse it more, Barabbas had a first name, and his first name was Jesus. And so when the multitudes cried out for their prisoner of choice on that fateful day, there were two choices. There was Jesus of Nazareth and Jesus, son of the Father. Now, some commentators have seized upon this fact to explain Jesus' seemingly sudden fall from popularity. Remember I talk about a lot of times how Jesus rode in in triumph with a lot of followers, and by the end of the week... 
uh, on, on the 14th of Nisan, which would have been the, the Thursday of the week, he seemed to have lost followers. Maybe he didn't. Maybe there was confusion of the names. It may have caused a moment of hesitation for the true disciples of Christ who were generally confused by the similarity of the names in their native tongue. The moment might have sounded like this to them. Who shall I release to you? Jesus who calls himself King of Jews or Jesus who calls himself Son of the Father? Now R.T. France in his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew from the New International Commentary of the New Testament, wrote this. It's even possible that Pilate heard shouts in favor of Jesus Barabbas and assumed it was the other Jesus they were shouting for. And he writes, at any rate, the coincidence of the names gives sharper point to Pilate's question, which Jesus do you want, son of Abba or the one who's known as Messiah? How's that for symbolism? How's that for tying up a knot? that the Son of God could not escape the cross. R.T. France goes on to intimate that Pilate tries to clarify the names without putting his endorsement on Jesus of Nazareth, assuming that the crowd would choose the innocent man. He was wrong. And so as every Jew in that company that day who called out for the death and crucifixion of Christ, friends, every Jew that called out for the crucifixion of Christ that day, right, was circumcised. And that is Paul's point. So Paul's point's well taken. Circumcision offers you no wisdom in seeing things rightly. And so circumcision cannot save, friends. Circumcision cannot justify. And so let's state it again. Abraham received received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he has while still uncircumcised. Friends, this is a point of history that we shouldn't pass by. Abraham was circumcised, and he became the father of all who would later become circumcised according to the law of Moses, as you you know. But don't miss the apostle's point here. It was not the circumcision that saved Abraham, just as your baptism doesn't save you or justify you in the sight of God. In fact, we believe you should not come for baptism until you're saved, until you're justified before God. And this is what Paul's stressing to his beloved Jewish countrymen that day. It was not the circumcision of Abraham that saved him, It couldn't have been because he was justified before the circumcision took place. The covenant sign was the outward sign of his faith. His faith was not the sign of his circumcision, right? The circumcision was the sign of his faith. His faith wasn't the sign of his circumcision. The Jews had it backwards. A small point of historical accuracy should clear up the confusion, and so Paul stresses the order of events. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And then later... Much later, he was circumcised. The record of the chronology is available to us from the book of Genesis. It's recorded in Genesis 15, 6, that he was called and he was justified. And only later, in Genesis 17, 11, was he circumcised. And, of course, it's a chronological book. And so the second part of the verse, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. So all this talk of circumcision is for our Jewish brethren who somehow misconstrued the purpose of Christ in their justification. Justification is bestowed on those who believe God and not on those who work to please God. Though we see work as a move toward salvation, God sees our contributions as self-aggrandizing. 
He sees our good work as our attempts to justify ourselves. I have people say that to me. I don't feel right with God. Will you baptize me again? As though that would do anything. Our attempts to gain his favor is evidence that we did not believe in his method. If we're trying to gain God's favor by good works, that's because we didn't believe in his method, which was he paid for our sins. Our good works, our attempts to make ourselves righteous, do nothing other than to seek to glorify ourselves and to reject the perfect offer of God. Lloyd-Jones comments on it. He wrote this, I must turn aside for a moment to comment on the powerful, tenacious, and subtle character of unbelief. He says, notice how when one argument is demolished, another argument is immediately brought up. And then he says this, it is the whole tragedy of mankind that it keeps on arguing against its own salvation. Man in sin is always anxious to claim a little credit for himself. He resents the doctrine that salvation is solely and entirely the free gift of God. Christ paid for it. And your faith is the sign that you believed in it and received the justification. So when you see the man upon the cross dying for, paying for your sins, be cognizant of all the divine initiative that put him there. I mean, he went to court. He was pronounced innocent. The mob rose up. They had another little bit of due process. You could choose one prisoner this one time of the year. The names were so similar. Maybe they were confused. Maybe not, but it certainly seems to me they must have been. Be mindful of all the voices of human authority that declared his innocence. Be mindful that he could have escaped his crucifixion if he wanted to. Friends, Christ was determined to get to the cross to pay for your sins. And he even said to Pilate, Do you think that even now I cannot pray to my Father and he'll provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? And so remember this, friends, God does all things on purpose. He does all things on purpose. And know that the power of the Christian faith is that we are here, and we are saved, and we're attended by a God who does all things according to the counsel of his will. If you stand justified before God, it's because he justified you. If your sins are paid for, it's because he paid for them. If you're saved, it's because he saved you. And God saved you because you could not save yourself. That's his mercy, friends. That's his gift. Christ is God's gift to dying humanity. And as Lloyd-Jones says, man is constantly devising new arguments against his own salvation. They just don't like that the road is narrow. It gets you there, but it's narrow. And the Holy Spirit is God's gift to those who have chosen to live eternally. Salvation is for those who believe, and those who believe are those who have stopped struggling to poke holes in the plan of God. It's the plan. Give me another plan. I'll, I'll look at it. I won't really, but I've never heard anyone answer the call. Who's got a better plan? Verse 16, therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. The Jews call him Father Abraham. Guess what? So do we. There are a number of concepts here we should focus on. First, take note of the fact that the reason that justification is by faith is so that it can be certain. If your salvation is to have a guarantee, then it must be accomplished by God himself. If you established your own salvation, 
you can lose it. That's why we read this. When God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Friends, we like to say, I swear to God. I hope you don't say it a lot, but we say things, I swear to God. God says, I swear to me. He could swear by no higher. He swore by himself. Surely blessing, I'll bless you, and multiplying, I'll multiply you. We make a pledge by swearing God, and God makes a pledge by swearing to himself. A second point is the, rev- is the reference to Abraham being father to us all, and that is to all the faithful, friends. The us refers to us, the believers. We've only to look back at verse 12, which says of Abraham that he is the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. One more historical reference here. You see, Abraham preceded Moses by some 400 years, and the law came through Moses. But for those initial 400 years, all those who believed in God were were justified before God. They received the blessing of his grace by faith. And so it is by faith that it might be according to grace, he writes. And so those who preceded the law saved by faith. Those who were under the law, who were given the law, they're saved by faith. And those who came after the fulfillment of the law with the crucifixion of Christ are fulfilled by faith. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law in all dispensations. God does all things on purpose, friends. I can't say it enough. He had one plan for salvation from the very beginning. And it's a plan that transcended all the different dispensations of his grace from Adam to the present day. If you're justified, then you're saved. Nothing can stop it. If your sins are paid for, then they're paid for. Now, some of you may want me to talk about sanctification here. I got to tell you, that's another issue. You're justified first. Your docket is paid. Your, your ledger is cleared. So if you're justified, it's done by God. And if you're resurrected, it's because he was resurrected before you. For death could not hold the righteous, and he's declared you righteous. And his righteousness has been imparted to you and to me by faith. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And I'll close with this from Romans chapter 8. Whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. He who did not spare his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? O Father, we pray that by faith we would know Christ. We pray by faith we would witness to those who have yet to make profession of faith, And we pray, Father, we would all rise and be with him as he is indeed risen. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.